This morning's passage is from Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. You can find it on page 417 in the Bibles underneath your chairs. Job 1, 1 through 3. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Welcome to Trinity. I'm Dan. I serve as the lead pastor here. There was a man in the land of Uz. I love the start of that. It sounds like a story you might read to your kid, you know. He was the greatest of all the people in the East. And this story, it begins kind of on a high note, but it's a story, I'm going to say, of undeserved or innocent suffering and heartache that seeks through narrative and poetic dialogue to give wisdom to those who are suffering. And in doing so, it obviously raises some serious questions like why evil and suffering? Or better yet, why do good people suffer? Or the narrower focus of this book, why do the godly or the righteous suffer? And that's a huge question, and honestly, I feel uneasy. There's a point in the book where Job says, I spoke of things I shouldn't have been speaking about, and I wonder if this is one of those moments for me this morning, but here I am. I feel maybe a little uneasy because it's such a long book, and this is one sermon. Uneasy because it's such an immense topic. But here we are, and I'm trusting that maybe today, by God's grace, What was said about the book of Job will encourage you and help you if you're suffering or even if you're not. And what I want to do this morning is just make what I hope will be some helpful observations from the book that will give you wisdom when suffering comes your way. And there's two ways that I think this whole topic of suffering generally hits us. Sometimes it just hits us as a philosophical discussion. Why is there suffering and evil in the world? And what does that say about God? And for some people, that's a huge stumbling block. For other people, it's even a little more personal than that. Why is there suffering and evil in my life? I think both of those are highly likely for every one of us at some point. And so I want to start this morning with something that I've already hinted at. Suffering is not always the result of sin. One of the big questions regarding suffering is, of course, why? And the logical big picture answer for Christians is sin, right? Whether it's sin as the direct cause or sin as an indirect cause, we usually answer everything of suffering with somehow sin as the answer. And so as Texans clean up from Harvey and Floridians brace for Irma, When we consider lives lost and pain caused, someone will blog about, well, this was all part of God's judgment on sin. On Christians and even on non-Christians. And I just wonder if that's the place for us to start. I'm inclined to think that 
not everyone who suffers loss is either guilty of some specific sin that caused the loss or is caught up in the sin of other people. And I'm not so sure at least, I, I just don't think it's the place for us to start. You see, regarding our man Job, the story goes to great lengths to show us that he was innocent of any sin that would warrant the kind of suffering that he was enduring. And we see this in the opening verses. Job was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Blameless. Now that doesn't mean he was perfect or had sinless perfection, but it points to an integrity of his being. He was a man of his word. He was an upright guy, it says. This is describing his relationship with others. God-fearing. An attitude of humility that marked his relationship and posture before God. And finally, we read that he turned away from evil. Revealing that Job's character was marked by regular repentance and a habitual turning away from evil in his thoughts, words, and deeds. We've been rightly taught that all have sinned and fall short of God's holy standard. That all of us deserve eternal punishment apart from faith in Christ. And that may push us at times to assume too quickly sin as the primary cause of all suffering and judgment as its primary purpose. In fact, chapter after chapter in the book of Job is filled with the counsel or the wisdom of Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, who repeatedly point to sin as the only logical reason for Job's problems. And confession and repentance is the only chance of Job, that Job has of turning things around. And yet we know that their counsel was wrong. Certainly sin plays a role in Job's story as the Sabians and the Chaldeans murder his servants and run off with his possessions. But the wicked aren't the ones suffering in this story. Job is. And the great wind that came out of nowhere and killed Job's children in the house that they were gathered at, it can't be directly tied to sin, either Job or his family's sin. It's interesting, growing up in the church, I often heard that when Job says, the things that I feared have come upon me, that it was his fear that led to all of this, and that he needed, if he had only been thinking rightly, this wouldn't have happened. Nowhere is that implied in the book. In fact, no speculation at all is needed in trying to discern whether Job was suffering because of his sin. Because after he loses his possessions and after his children are killed in a windstorm, God says to Satan in chapter 2, verse 3, See, Job still holds fast his integrity Although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. And in 122, we also see that in his response to the loss of his wealth and his family, Job did not sin. He did not charge God with wrong. And then later, when his health is taken from him, we read that he did not sin with his lips. 
For the believer, the follower of God, there must be, and you have to hear this, there must be more to suffering than simply judgment for sin. Because clearly Job does not suffer for that reason. And if you are suffering now, or whenever suffering comes your way, and it will, I think Job shows us while suffering is not always the result of sin, suffering is intensely personal. One of the reasons I felt uneasy about one sermon from the book of Job is it has 42 chapters. It's a massive book. And most of those chapters, 35, are the words of Job's friends and the words of Job in defense as he tries to figure out what's going on. 35 chapters of Job crying out to God for justice and Job's friends telling him, if you'd repent, God would set things right. There is a prolonged heaviness in this book. That's probably why many of you haven't read it lately, right? It's like, okay, I get the gist of this. Let's move on and figure out what the ending is to this book. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, give us a taste of what's going on. Job said, Oh, that all my vexation were weighed, and all my calamity laid in the balances, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. You know how heavy sand is, right? Especially when it's wet. Therefore my words have been rash, for the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Wow. We're going to think through the purpose of suffering here in a minute, but what I'm suggesting here is this, is that working through suffering biblically seems to be a process, not an event. And I'm encouraged by the fact that while God eventually challenges Job in the end, He never condemns Job for the struggle. In fact, we read in chapter 42, verse 7, at the end, near the end, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Timonite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now that seems a little different than what we find in chapter 38, verses 2 and 3, where God says to Job, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, I will question you. I think it's clear that not everything Job said about God was fully informed. Not everything was spot on. And that's one of the challenges of reading this book, right? What verses from Job, what verses from his friends are actually true and wise? And yet, stepping back, the length of the discussion points to the fact that while God wants to teach us patience and so much more in our suffering, He is incredibly patient with us. I've never suffered anything remotely close to what Job and some of you here have suffered. And certainly, I was not as righteous as our man Job. 
But I went through a difficult season in my life in which I struggled for more than a year, probably closer to 18 months. It's even hard to know when I came out of the funk that I was in. It was extremely personal. And words to snap out of it and just to kind of put my pride to rest and to come back just didn't work for me. You see, I not only struggled with the whys, but I struggled with my own slowness to to bounce back, to be better, to move on. And like Job, all my thoughts and prayers and pleadings were not right on, but God was so patient. And reading Job this week, it just made me wonderfully aware of God's posture towards people who were suffering. And what the road to recovery, if that's, a, if that's a way of thinking about it, a road to a better place looks like. If you're suffering, and I think probably many of you are, there's no mistake, it is personal. It hurts. It can seem random and uncalled for, right? Right? It's as if you won the wrong lottery. You know what I mean? It's like, what are the odds? Well, somehow I won this one, right? I think Job shows us that there's a way to engage suffering intensely and say the things to God that are on our minds, even the hard and difficult things, in a posture that doesn't displease God at all. And those of us who God has called to walk alongside those who suffer should seek to give comfort and be patient even as God calls us to give gentle insights and correction. Suffering is not always the result of sin. It is intensely personal and it has a purpose. It's not meaningless. It's not random And that purpose is opened up to us by the author in chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Here we're given privileged information that none of the participants in the story on earth have. And they never get that information. And what I want you to notice is the fact that Job's righteousness, not his sin, is what makes him a target for suffering. This is a test to see if Job lives a righteous life only for the benefit he receives, or if he truly loves God 
for God Himself. That's what Satan challenges. Take everything he has, his money, his family, his health, and see if he still serves you and loves you. Any number of worship songs that I've sung over the years have in some way or another contained the idea that God is all I need. That He alone can satisfy every longing in my heart. That His grace is enough for me. That knowing Jesus is the greatest thing anyone could ever encounter. And I have often and still to this day, so if you see me not singing, this will make sense to you. I found myself doing one of two things. Either I stop singing because I know that my life is so far from that kind of truth. Or I simply sing the words as a prayer. Lord, let this be true of me. That your grace, that you alone would satisfy all the longings of my heart and soul. That you would be my one desire. C.S. Lewis once said, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Here in Job, the purpose is not simply, will Job pass the test? I hope you see that. The purpose is, I will reveal myself more fully through suffering to Job than I ever could through prosperity. That's what's going on here. I will reveal myself to Job more glorious, more thoroughly, more wonderfully through suffering than I ever could through prosperity. I will be gracious to Job by allowing him to suffer in order that he may see me in a way that would not have been possible without suffering. And that's exactly what's expressed in Job's final words found in chapter 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. And Job says this. He says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. The purpose of suffering, at least in part, in this great book of Job, is to experience in God in ways that prosperity could never accomplish, in ways that blessing could never accomplish. Suffering has the power to prove that knowing Jesus is truly the greatest thing. That He is honestly all we really need. That He can satisfy. And as we move into the New Testament, we we see writers like Peter and John and Paul all expounding the virtue of suffering in the Christian life. In fact, in the Old Testament, we see this constant refrain. 
why do the, the wicked prosper? It seems to be the cry of the people of Israel. Why do the wicked prosper? Why are we suffering? What's going on? But when we get to the New Testament, we read things like this out of Philippians. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Why? In order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And of course, Jesus himself, the one who suffered and died for sin, told us to expect suffering and persecution as his people. And then he went on to say, and when that happens, you should rejoice. To which we often go, seriously? Oh, man. I think, and I'll speak for you, but no, I'm speaking from my own reflection. I think most of us have heard God in the whispers. And he wants to get us to a place of seeing him face to face. And whether we like it or not, at some point, I think that road is going to have to go down the path of suffering. Because we somehow experience and know Him in a way, through suffering, that blessing and prosperity just can't get us to. And yet, while suffering allows us to see God more, And to see him more clearly and to delight in him more fully, suffering is shrouded in mystery. I haven't addressed some of the pretty obvious and massive questions like why suffering at all? Why evil? Where is justice? And I don't know if this will help what I'm about to say. But it's the thing that gave Job that aha moment in this book. And so I think it's worth a brief look. And what was it? Well, God's answer to Job, if you read it, comes in chapters 38, 39, 40, and 41. And it comes in two parts. Part one, were you there when I laid the foundations of this world, when the created world was set in place with all its intricacies? Were you there when I put the human mind together? Or the ostrich that lays its eggs? Or when I developed the weather patterns that are on the earth, the snow, the wind, the lightning? Were you there? And when God finishes two chapters of describing the world that he created and the glory and the splendor of it, he challenges Job in the first two verses of chapter 40. Shall the fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And Job says, uh, look, 
I made a mistake, right? I mean, I'm too small and insignificant to give you an answer. I think my best bet right now is just to zip it, okay? You know, tick a lock, you know. Hand over my mouth is what the text says. I think I've said enough already. Just a, another marriage pointer. Sometimes that's a good one in marriage too, right? Just stay. Enough. I've said enough. Let's not dig a, a bigger hole here. But again, God challenges Job. And, and this challenge, in this second challenge, that is, ver- is chapters 40 and 41, he describes two ferocious beasts, behemoth and leviathan. And some say that behemoth resembles a hippopotamus. And Leviathan, a crocodile. And to be honest with you, that seems kind of anticlimactic, right? He says to Job, can you tame the hippo or tame the crocodile? I can, can you? And of course, Job says, I can't, but how does that help? That seems like an odd way to end the discussion, right? We've got 40 chapters of meat, and we end with meat, but it's hippo meat and crocodile meat. One more thing before you go, Job. Have you considered the hippo and the crocodile and how hard they are to tame? Well, both beasts, while resembling in some ways real animals, go far beyond any earthly creatures we know. Leviathan, in other parts of Scripture, like Psalm 74 and Psalm 104 and Isaiah 27, and then with the book of Revelation and its strange and terrifying serpents and sea monsters and all of that, convey to us this picture of this ferocious, evil beast. Picture for us the terror and evil of Satan himself. He is the embodiment, Leviathan, of cosmic evil. And God ends his description of Leviathan in chapter 41, verses 33 and 34. On earth is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Sounds a little bit like the prince of the power of the air. The ruler of this present age. Now, behemoth is a little harder for us to pin down. But he may represent death itself. Maybe a grim reaper type of figure. He's a ferocious beast who goes around eating things. And together they represent the problem of evil God is not asking Job whether he can tame a hippo or a crocodile. No, he's saying, do you think that you can take on the problem of evil? Do you think you are ready for this? Can you handle this? Job's answer, no, I can't handle this. Job's hope, you can. You can. Because God says to Job, look, the behemoth and the Leviathan are under my command. I control them. They're on my leash. They go only where I let them go. 
Not even the hideous, dreadful, deep, dark fear of evil can thwart God's purposes. In fact, while the book ends with this picture of Satan as ferocious and monstrous and evil as just hideousness, remember how it started with the picture of Satan at the council of God in the heavens. And he wants to do some stuff, but what does he do? Well, look, you don't let me touch Job. He's off limits. Give me some room here to maneuver, to work. He has to ask God's permission before he acts on the earth. And you know what? In itself, that's a little disturbing too, right? I mean, why why not just end this? But in the end, Job finds comfort in knowing that Satan cannot and will not gain the upper hand. Why Satan? Why evil? Why suffering? We can't say. And the older I get, the more I'm inclined to think we may never know. I used to think once we get to heaven, all the secrets of the universe will be revealed, will be downloaded, you know. And then I'll go like, oh, of course it makes sense. Why didn't you just tell us that from the beginning? The older I get, the more I realize That while God has made us in His image, there is a big gap between us and God. It's massive. I know this, evil came into being long before we appeared on the scene. Satan was there when Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. But while he's been around a long time, there's something else we know. His schemes and evil itself will come to an end. So suffering and evil may be shrouded in in mystery, but suffering and death and evil and Satan, behemoth and Leviathan, will be thrown down, as we read in the book of Revelation. They will be defeated and their reign of terror will end and it will come through suffering. Suffering will bring about redemption and resurrection and victory over Satan, sin, and evil. It's incredible. Now, when we read the story, God restores Job's fortunes. He gets twice as much as he had before. He gets a new wife, new kids, new camels, new sheep, new everything, new tents, the whole shebang. His latter days are more prosperous and fruitful than his former days. I think this is not, I think this is a foreshadowing, not of earthly prosperity, but an expectation that justice will be served, that evil will not triumph in the end. Throughout the book of Job, he seeks an advocate who will argue his case before God. In a number of places, we see this unfolding in his thinking. And in Job 19.26, he says, I know my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand up on the earth. God has promised Job that He is able to deal with behemoth and Leviathan. And He did just 
that when he sent his only son into the world, Jesus Christ, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief and suffering, who came to die so that through his death he might win a decisive victory over the terror of evil, death, and suffering. Colossians chapter 2, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then we read this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. God triumphed over evil, over the principalities and authorities, over the prince of the power of the air through the suffering of His Son, Jesus Christ. Job, the book of Job to some extent calls us to to trust in God, right? To say there are things out there that are beyond me. To, to, to humble ourselves and say, look, some things are too wonderful for me to understand. I would say some things are too scary for me to want to understand. And the wisdom this book offers is that we are not God and seeking to play that role is dangerous, but God is God And despite what we might think or feel or sense in the world around us or in our own lives, everything is under control. So we can trust. And the fact that He has suffered in our place, that He has walked this earth and He understands what it's like to be human, that He's familiar with our temptations, with our sufferings, with our struggle, that He knows pain. It's, It's God's way of showing us in living color, so to speak, why we can trust Him. In Christ Jesus, we see most fully the character of a loving God on display. We can trust Him. And in the face of philosophical debate and arguments that seem to win the day against God, we can trust Him. In the face of human suffering, in the face of hurricane after hurricane after hurricane, we can trust Him. Jesus came and He died to set in motion a plan that is ramping up even now to restore all things under His rule and reign. Now, I mentioned the suffering has a purpose. Or you could say one of its main purposes is to allow us to see God better. Or in terms of a relationship, to experience a deeper friendship with Him a more intimate connection with Christ. Another C.S. Lewis quote that might be helpful here. 
it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Suffering seeks to break us from being half-hearted creatures who fail to see the beauty of God Himself and the joy that can only be found in Him. By Himself. Nothing else necessary. Not in the things He gives us. And so I want to end by asking what seems like a helpful question. Should we seek suffering? If it's so beneficial, could it be to our advantage to seek it out? To go looking for it? Reading Paul's epistles, sometimes I get that sense, you know? He just says things like, you know, I I got beat up 43 times, I was shipwrecked, Uh, He has these long lists, you know. And we know that Paul knew Jesus in a way that's compelling, right? But at other times, Paul tells us to pray for our rulers so that we can live quiet and peaceful lives. I like that verse. It's kind of one I keep finding myself going back to. So should we seek suffering? I may not answer this question adequately, Maybe in your community groups you can talk about it more in depth. But I'm going to start by saying no. And I say that because as I get older, I realize at some point suffering is just going to find you. You don't have to go looking for it, right? It will catch up with you. Job's friend Eliphaz said in chapter 5, verse 7, man is born for trouble as the sparks fly upward. And so, no, I don't think we need to seek trouble or suffering or pain. You, know, you don't have to go shoot yourself in the foot or anything like that. When we're called to suffer and as God wants us to suffer, it will happen. And in fact, we're called when we can by God to, to stop suffering, right? To try and put an end to suffering. We're called to look out for the needs of others in our community. And so, that makes me think that there could be another answer to this question. Should we seek suffering? Yes. Yes and no. Not suffering itself, but we should seek out sufferers. We saw this in James, that we are called to care for the widows and the orphans, to care for those who are are struggling to make it in this world. Those with great needs that cannot be met. I don't have a well laid out plan for this. This is, this is, this is my musings on, on this. But it hit me as I was working through this sermon that if suffering truly seeks to disconnect us from the world, to embrace a world and a kingdom that is to come, but is already here, 
then we seek and love that kingdom when we seek to stand alongside those who are suffering. We seek to embrace suffering even when it's not happening to us by embracing those who themselves are suffering. And in that, we make a connection to suffering that impacts us personally. We've talked a lot about mission and what it might look like here. And I think for a church like us with a long history, getting there is, you know, it's not that easy. But we want to keep thinking and praying and acting. And it's my hope that in the years to come, we will be more engaged with those who are suffering in our community. That we will weep with those who weep, that we will mourn with those who mourn, that Trinity Community Church will become a place of comfort and encouragement for the downtrodden. So should we seek suffering? Maybe not, but we certainly should seek to bring comfort to those who suffer. What a book this Job. There is so much, so you're probably thinking, well, you left out this and that, and you're right. Um, but there's a lot for us to chew on this morning. And so will you join me in prayer? And as the band comes forward, I just want to take a few seconds just in silence for us to reflect on what God may be saying to us personally regarding suffering. Father, there's a, there's a part of us that, that wants to run from all suffering. That likes neat and tidy, comfortable lives without anything to mess up what's going on. Not in our own life and certainly not in the lives of others. Lord, would you work through us, through our suffering when we suffer? Would you change our heart and our attitude as we engage with the difficulties that you have placed in our lives? And then would you also give us a heart for those who are suffering around us? Certainly here in our own church. But beyond these walls, I pray that we would grow as a community, that you would direct and guide our steps as a people so that more and more our gaze is outward to those who suffer around us so that we might share the love of Jesus Christ and the hope of the kingdom that is to come. Amen.